It's been said that there are seven different, you can, when you take any movie, any book, any story, strip down to the most basic details, and there's only about seven different stories that you can tell. And I'm going to put these on the screen for you here. The first one, uh, the first type of plot is overcoming the monster. There are a lot of stories where you've got to overcome a big obstacle. Can you think of a Bible story that involves the, David and Goliath? I mean, what a perfect one. Overcoming a literal monster of a, of a man. Um, can't walk that way. Let me walk this other way. <laughs> you see, we're all learning here. <laughs> we're learning. Second one, the rags to riches story. That's a very common story. And uh, I don't know that Solomon in the Bible was exactly in the rags category being the king. Esther, that's a good one. Esther, just, just no name, young girl growing up, uh, in the end of the story becomes the queen and uh, overcomes some monsters in her own story. The quest, uh, people who set out on a journey on an expedition. Can you think of a, a prominent Bible character? Moses. Yeah, what a quest he went on. Uh, I thought about Abraham. Leaving his hometown, uncertain of where God was leading him, but he led him to the promised land. Epic quest. Uh, and then there was the voyage and return. A lot of stories, movies, books have voyage and return. When I was in high school, I had to read the Odyssey, or at least I was supposed to read the Odyssey. I read portions of it, and I understood portions of it. Uh, <laughs> right? Uh, Bible characters, Bible stories where there's a voyage and a... Paul, a prodigal son, that's an interesting one because he did kind of go on a voyage and return. And there's actually a category that maybe he might fit into even better, perhaps even the rebirth, uh, where... Are you, there's a change that happens, a positive change. Can you think of another Bible character? Jacob. Yeah, absolutely. What a, Joseph. Yeah, he went through some interesting transformations. What about in the New Testament? Anybody come to mind? Saul to Paul. Exactly. Uh, that one was in my mind as well. Uh, two more for you. Okay, comedy. Now, now, this can be in the typical sense of like things that are funny, but more in the classical sense, uh, it's more of stories that have a happy ending. It can start good, things get bad, and then it gets happy again in the end. Stories where the, traject the trajectory ends upward. Uh, so, our life could be a comedy, even though it's not that funny. The story of the Bible in the more traditional Greek play sense could be comedic in that everything starts good in the beginning, then it gets terrible, but praise God, in the end, it ends well. And finally, the very last category, and maybe I'm going to need to replace the batteries, is tragedy. And there are far too many tragedy stories in Scripture, aren't there? Far too many of them. So it's kind of fun to, to think about, you know, maybe you can just think about some of your favorite books or favorite films, and you can start to classify, oh, 
This is familiar because it's one of these kind of stories. And we won't take time to do that, but you can do that on your own. And as you start to read through scripture, you will notice these different themes popping up, recurring themes in the Bible. Now, what you've probably noticed in our journey through the book of Micah is that there are recurring themes in the book of Micah. Uh, and as we enter into the third and the final portion of the book today, we're going to see a familiar theme that comes back up again, which is this covenant lawsuit, this formal complaint um, that God has against his people. So open up your Bible to Micah chapter 6. We're going to Micah 6, and by now you should have a few more creases in there. What a great team we have. Micah chapter 6. And we start, of course, at the beginning of the chapter. Verse 1. Micah 6 and verse 1. We start with, in my Bible, there's a, there's a word that starts with H. What, what word does your Bible start with there? Listen, okay. Any other words? Hear. Yeah, that's what mine starts with. Listen, same thing. We identified early on, this word hear is kind of a, uh, it's, a, it's a key word as far as dividing this book into various categories, various sections. And we saw this at the very beginning. We saw this a little bit later. Uh, here appears, and it, it marks this transition to another section, another portion. Because remember, Micah lived a whole life. He didn't just do this in one sermon. Micah is not just one sermon. Like the epistles of Paul, they were one letter that were meant to be read in one sitting. The book of Micah and the prophetic books, they take prophecies, oracles that were given to these holy people of God, and sometimes they were given over many years' time, decades even. And so the reason why we get some of these themes that seem like they're repeating is because God had a similar message to people over decades that he was giving because they weren't listening. They didn't get the message the first time or the second time or the third time. Imagine if we were to summarize all, all sermons from one pastor in their whole lifetime in, and do it in the space of 20 pages or 10 pages you'd probably get some of those themes that keep coming around again. So Micah chapter 6, verse 1. Hear now what the Lord says. Introducing this final section. And it starts off there, it says, Arise and plead your case before whom or what? The mountains. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. So this is an interesting setting. We have a legal setting. Uh, plead your case. We're thinking of a courtroom. But instead of a jury, who, what's there? We've got mountains. And it's kind of fitting, actually, because as you think back in Scripture, remember when um, various Bible characters like Jacob and Laban, for example, when they finally made peace after they had a split, they set up a stone called an Ebenezer, 
Uh, or they set up a stone and it said, basically, this is a witness between me and you. Um, then when the children of Israel got to the land of, of promise, uh, and there were the eastern tribes and the western tribes that were divided by the Jordan River, they set up a pillar of stones as a witness between them. Or earlier on in Deuteronomy, when God is giving the covenant to his people, he said things like, I call heaven and earth as witness between me and you. Because honestly, if you think about it, if you've got God and you've got people, I mean, I guess you could call the angels, um, but God gives us uh, an eternal witness here, an ever-present witness as it were, on the earth, which is the very mountains. And remember that God's, Jesus said, I can make the rocks cry out if I want to. So God is now calling the mountains to listen. Verse 2, hear, O mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. They've been in a, an agreement, a covenant, and we're studying covenants now in our Sabbath school quarterly. Um, this formal agreement between two parties. And God is saying, you haven't kept your side of the bargain. That word there in my Bible that says complaint is the Hebrew word reeb, which is this covenant lawsuit language that appears all throughout Scripture. Um, God's saying, something has broken down in our agreement that we made with one another. So now we get into verse 3. God, he's the, he's the plaintiff. Micah is kind of the spokesman on behalf of God. And then we've got the mountains as the witnesses. Um, and then the people are there uh, to represent themselves in this um, discussion, in this legal proceedings. Verse 3. Oh, my people. Notice the language that's used here. God, even though he has this grievance against his people that have grieved his heart, how does he address them? My people. He hasn't cast them aside. He hasn't forsaken them. He doesn't want to distance himself from them. He still wants them to be his people. This is the heart of a God who's been grieved by his children, who've been estranged from him by their own choices, and he's calling them, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. What have I done? I remember a friend of mine came to me years ago, and he said, hey, so what happened? I said, well, what do you mean what happened? He said, well, what happened between me and you? Like, what? we're not as close as we used to be. And I hadn't even really realized it, that we had drifted apart. God is, is coming to his people and he's saying, what happened? Tell me what's going on. What have I done against you? How have I wearied? You testify against me. Verse 4, For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I set before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. 
Remember all those things I did for you? I saved you guys. You were slaves, and I rescued you. You were without hope, and I gave you hope. You were leaderless, and I gave you good leaders to guide you. Verse 5, oh, my people, can you hear the Father's heart pleading with his children? My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled. That was the king that wanted to curse the Israelites in the book of Numbers. So he hired Balaam, the son of Beor. And Balaam said, well, I can only say what God tells me to say. And so he goes up onto a mountaintop, and he says, bless these people, and in, in a lot of words more complex and beautiful than that. And he goes up on another mountain. Well, maybe if I go to this other mountain, and all he can say is, God bless you guys. How can I curse whom God has blessed? These people that were so hard-hearted and stiff-necked, just like you and me. And all the prophet could do, even though he wanted to curse them, all he could do was bless them. But remember what happened after that? The people fell into sexual sin and idolatry. Many of them died. This was just on the border of the promised land, says there in my Bible, the Acacia Grove, or Shittim in other versions. From Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Don't you remember what happened there? You were on the borders of the promised land, and you abandoned me. But I still brought you through across. Gilgal is now on the other side of the river, going from eastern uh, Jordan to the western side of the Jordan. I redeemed you. I saved you in spite of your... In spite of all the things that I could have done, I saved you. Don't you remember? He's appealing to their hearts. It reminds me of the words of Isaiah. Remember Isaiah was a contemporary. He lived at the same time as Micah. And later on today, read Micah chapter 5, just the first five verses or so. Because as the parable of the vineyard, where God compares his people to a vineyard, and he says, I took out your stones that were in the, in the dirt out of the way. I, I, I planted the best vine I could find. I put a tower there for watching over this vineyard. And why, when I expected you to, to bring forth good grapes, did you bring forth sour, bitter grapes? I did everything I could to give you the best possible outcome. But you didn't respond as I had intended. And God says those words. He says, what more could I have done? Judge now between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done that had not been done? And for anybody who's lost, ultimately, I believe those same words will be said in effect. What more could I have done? And so God, now in Micah, through the prophet Micah, he's asking a similar question. You've abandoned me. What did I do? All I've done is help you in the times when you've had problems. It's because of your own choices. And then we get to verse 6. 
And it's only in this context does verse 6 make more sense because now in this court scene, a representative of the people, the rebellious people, step forward and they speak in this trial imagery. With what shall I come before the Lord? And scholars debate whether this is in sarcasm, uh, sarcastically speaking, or whether this is like, what do you want, God? I have no idea. Should I bow myself down before the Most High God? God, is that what you want? You want me to just bow down? What about, shall I come before you with burnt offerings? The speaker says. Well, let me take it a step further. How about a calf that's a year old? You know, if you take a baby calf that's just been born, you don't have as much investment as if you've raised it, fed it, cared for it for an entire year. Let me up the ante a little bit. God, you want, you want a, not just a baby calf, you want a, a one-year-old calf? Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased? How about with thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Jerry, you know about, you know about oil. <laughs> 10,000. God, what do you want? Thousands of rams? How about, how about we bring to you 10,000 rivers of oil? Is that not enough? Well, how about I give you the firstborn for my transgression? I'll sacrifice my firstborn child, God. Is that what you want? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Their words indicate they don't get it. They don't understand what's going on. I like the words of Bruce Waltke, a Bible commentator. Put it on the screen here for you. He writes about this person speaking, whether it's the king or whether it's someone else. He can bid no higher. Outwardly, he appears spiritual as he bows before the Most High with gift in hand. But his insulting questions betray a desperately wicked heart. Blinded to God's goodness and character, he reasons within his own depraved frame of reference. He need not change. God must change. He compounds his sin by refusing to repent, by suggesting that God, like man, can be bought. His willingness to raise the price does not reflect his generosity, but veils a complaint that God demands too much. The reverse side of his bargaining is that he hopes to buy God off as cheaply as possible. He doesn't see his need to change. Okay, what do you want, God? What do you want? Is this, is this enough? Okay, you want more? Sadly, that's often the attitude of the human heart. We don't want to change our behaviors. We just want to make the problem go away. We have guilt in our hearts. And we don't want to change and repent. We just want to make the guilt go away. Take away the consequences, God. I can't deal with this. very dangerous when we feel that our relationship with God is a series of actions that we do. 
forgetting about the relationship. Religion is not a collection of do's and don'ts. It's not a, it's not a collection of go to church, pay my tithe, keep the Sabbath, and you know, do all these things. With what shall I come before the Lord? With 5% for the church budget every month, which would really help. <laughs> Remember, Jesus, when he spoke to the Pharisees, he said, you tithe the mint and you know, the herbs, but they were neglecting their parents. And, and He said, don't leave the former undone while doing the latter. In other words, they're both important, right? Religion isn't this collection of do's and don'ts, though. If we think that that's what it is, we've missed the point. And the speaker here in Micah has totally missed it. And so then we get to verse 8, which I've sung. I know two different versions of the scripture song. Uh, They're both good. Then we get to verse 8, and it says, He has shown you. So this is now presumably Micah speaking to the, the representative of the congregation. He has shown you, oh man, what is good. Well, the question that comes to my mind is, well, when did he show you? Well, primarily when the covenant was started. What does God want? Well, the covenant, the law, it reveals it. As you read those first five books of the Bible, we see what it is that God wants. God wants to be with us, and God wants to help us. And so he gives us these rules to follow, not to make him happy by, our, by just our actions, but to help us be better people and to bring joy to his heart because we're not messing up our lives and messing up the lives of other people. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And this word there, good, uh, scholars say that this is short form for the covenant and the next few phrases that follow. He's already showed you what God wants of you. In fact, you can think to examples where Jesus kind of summarized the law. On these two points hang all the law and the prophets. Just a couple of words, a couple of phrases representing the greater body of God's instructions. In fact, there's also this awesome passage by the similar prophet Micah. Excuse me, Amos. Let me show you this on the screen. Amos chapter 5. And I love how the New Living Translation puts it. Um, And if you want to hear an awesome scripture song on this, look up John Foreman, I Hate All Your Show, or something like that. John Foreman, uh, I Hate All Your Show. Here's what God said to the people through Amos, dealing with approximately the same situation. He said, I hate all your show and pretense. The hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns and of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. It's just all a show, God said. Now, was God saying he hates sincere singing to the Lord? Sincere gatherings? Of course not. But if that takes the place of the heartfelt experience, then 
then we've missed the mark. And he continues, he said, instead, I want to see a mighty flood of what? Justice, an endless river of what? Of righteous living. God says, I hate all your show. Just start living like you actually believe and love and follow me. So notice Micah's version. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What does God want from you? Well, he's already told you, but let me give you a reminder. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You know, one of the key words in the book of Micah is that word justice. Over and over again, we see a lack of justice. People were dying, literally in Micah's day, because people were not receiving the justice that they needed. The rich were extorting the poor, the poor were dying because of it, and the rich didn't care. The prophets, they were only prophesying what people wanted to hear, and only if they were paid. The priests, they required extra money to give instruction. God was sick of it. He wanted justice, and that word justice is the word mishpat, judgment, justice. Uh, you know, the, all the instructions that God gave the ins- explaining the Ten Commandments, all those additional laws, they're called the mishpatim, that's the plural form. And so commentators, at least I was, I was reading one commentator, they were saying, this again is a reference back to the covenant. What does God want? Well, check out what the covenant says. Those The Ten Commandments were not meant to be exhaustive in their scope because there are a lot of situations that are not specifically covered under those precepts. So God gave a number of examples or case laws to help explain more precisely how to apply those laws. God is saying, what do you want? What do I want? Do justly. Seek justice for others in your community, for yourself. Be fair people. Come back to my covenant. But not only do justly, it says love mercy. That's one you can't fake. It doesn't say, it doesn't say be merciful. Because even Hitler could be merciful. But if you don't have that love relationship, you can't love mercy. That takes a connection with God who changes your heart. I mean, think about what loving mercy entails. It means that that there are people in your life that make you mad, and they make you want to get even with them. And so instead of just being tolerant of them, loving mercy means God helps you to somehow love giving them mercy. Now, now mercy does not mean letting them run over you and not having healthy boundaries in your life. And Sometimes we need to separate ourselves from toxic people. Amen? But there is a difference. You can forgive someone and still say, I wish you the best, I wish you good life, but I'm not able to continue being around you. 
giving up your right to get revenge on them. That's a part of loving mercy. You guys know the, the hymn Amazing Grace? Of course you do. It was written by a guy who used to be a slave trader. A man who, who God really helped get, um, get a hold of his life. John Newton, of course, was his name. And he actually wrote in a sermon that he felt that this passage was one of the most misunderstood in the Bible. And I think it's because sometimes these words, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly, it kind of almost, for some people, becomes like a uh, be nice, don't hurt other people, and you'll go to heaven kind of a religion. You know? Like, it's kind of a bumper sticker kind of a religion. Hey, I'm not killing people, I'm not stealing, uh, I'm not participating in human trafficking, therefore, I'm good. You're good, we're all good. We're going to, going to the happy spot in the sky someday with the big guy, right? The man upstairs. He's saying people are misunderstanding what this is really about. This is a call to radical repentance and returning to covenant relationship with God. And notice, uh, quoting now from uh, this great sermon from Pastor Newton. Do you love mercy, he asks. Is it the pleasure of your hearts to overcome evil with good? That's a part of it. If your brother or neighbor offends you, not seven times, but 70 times seven, do you find it delightful to repeat your forgiveness? Ooh. Do you need the Holy Spirit in your life? This is an advertisement for our need of the Holy Spirit, amen? Because this is impossible with the carnal human heart. Do you find it delightful to repeat your forgiveness? To bless them that curse you, to pray for them that despitefully use you, and to requite repeated injuries with repeated acts of kindness. If not, what have you to do with mercy? Either to pretend that you love mercy yourselves. And then he actually, I cut it out because it was so it was so powerful. Or to receive mercy from God, he said. Remember what Jesus said? Talked about forgiveness. And how if we are unwilling to forgive, how can we receive the forgiveness that God is offering us? And again, this is a miracle of the Holy Spirit, and I recognize forgiveness is a process, and it takes time, and I have a wonderful book on it if you want to read it. It's usually not one of those instantaneous things. But there has to be a willingness. If there's not a willingness then we need to pray for God to give us a willingness to start that process. So these words, this is not just a scripture song. This is a powerful passage calling them and calling us to radical repentance and returning to covenant relationship with our God. He's already showed you what he wants. What does God require? to do justly, to live a life of justness and radical fairness, 
in our world to love mercy, not just be merciful, but to enjoy the process of giving mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That particular word, how it's used, is only used once in the Bible. And it may not just mean humbly. It may also have the idea of walking circumspectly. That is, cautiously in this relationship with God as you seek to unite your will and your life with his. Think carefully how you live, how you walk, how you behave. This is what God is asking. This whole lawsuit procedure is not God wanting to divorce his people, not God wanting to punish his people. It's God inviting his people back into relationship with him. And as we've talked about already, the covenant curses were conditional, and they didn't have to happen, as the blessings were also. And then briefly, verse 9, we continue, because sadly, the people in that day were not ready to accept. The Lord's voice cries to the city, Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod who has appointed it. Are there yet treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? A whole bunch of rich people got their money through wicked practices and behavior. And the short measure that is an abomination. Shall I count pure with those the wicked scales and bags of deceitful weights? Uh, They had in some of these markets and money lenders, they had scales that were not honest. Because, of course, in those days, they didn't have Bitcoin, they didn't have paper currency, and they just weighed out silver or uh, whatever other type of metal or currency they were using. And people would find little ways to cheat the system. Uh, Weights that were supposed to represent standard weights that were not standard weight. Finding all sorts of ways to cheat the average person out of their money, and to enrich themselves. And God saying, I hate it. Verse 12, for her rich men are full of violence. Her inhabitants have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in the mouth. We've got people cheating. We have people uh, amassing riches through wickedness. We have people who are violent and, and killing one another even. And we have people who are spewing lies out of their mouth. And so what's God's response It's very interesting because as you go back to the covenant, to this agreement that the people were under with God, having already saved them, having already rescued them, having provided provision every time they fail and mess up to forgive them, God had told them, if you abandon me, these are the curses or the consequences that will follow. And one of them, some of them are what they call curses of futility. Very interesting. We see this here. Verse 13. Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you, making you desolate because of your sins. Verse 14. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but shall not save them. And what do you rescue? And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. You will sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall make sweet wine, but not drink wine. These futility curses, even when you have, you won't have. You won't have satisfaction and contentment and peace like you want. And the last verse here, 
verse 16, for the statutes of Omri are kept. Remember when we were doing one of our series on the kings? We didn't directly talk too much about Omri, but he was a bad king that led people down the path of worshiping other gods and all sorts of other abominable practices. And we talked not too long ago about even kings who would make their kids pass through the fire, sacrificing their kids to the flames. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not that, again, God is a selfish God. God sees the effects of idolatry, hurting innocent little children, all sorts of horrible things that it led to, more violence, more crime, more uh, inequity in society. And so God was calling the people back to worshiping and following him. So they were following after Omri. All the works of Ahab's house are done. You walk in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore, you shall bear the reproach of my people. Kind of some heavy words. Heavy thoughts. Thankfully, as we've discussed previously, there were some who heeded. Not the majority, but there were some who returned back to God. Remember again, the heart of the one who's saying all these things. A God who again and again is calling them my people. My people. What loving parent wouldn't address their children and try to get them to turn from destructive paths? An unloving parent would say, do whatever you want. doesn't bother me. That's not how God acts. He loves us too much to let us ruin our own lives. To let us bring down upon us the consequences of our choices of our failures. And we're going to end this book next week on a really high note, with a really wonderful note. But I want to go back again to these seven different kinds of plot lines. What would you classify this chapter as if we were to this is tragedy. God is hoping for rebirth of the people, a spiritual renewal, but right now it's in the phase, uh, the plot line of tragedy. I want to ask you this question, though. What is the story of your life characterized as right now? And you don't have to tell me. This is not a, don't raise your hand. If you had to summarize the arc of your life, where is it? Some of you have overcome some real monsters in your life. Some of you have gone from rags to riches. In a sense, we're all on a quest, right? Hopefully, we all have experienced rebirth. Some of us have had a lot of ups and downs that may characterize the comedic 
aspect of plot lines. Some of us might feel today as though our life maybe has been tragic for a variety of circumstances. But the encouragement I want to leave with you today is this. You are still writing your story. You may have some tragic chapters in your life, but your book isn't done yet. Listeners at home, your book is not complete yet. The very fact that you're alive tells me your story can end however you want it to. Now, we may not be able to choose, well, I want the riches pile, rags to riches. That's how my book's going to end. Well, in a sense, that's how all of our stories will end. Heavenly riches. Most of us are not safe to bless with riches because it will end in tragedy. Amen? You know yourself. Thank God he doesn't let you be rich. So how do you want your story to end? Because all of us can have a story that ends in glory. How do we do that? We say, God, I'm a wreck. I'm a mess. God, thank you for where you've brought me so far. Help me in my choices today. While it's still called today, and I've got a couple of suggestions for you. Do justly, love mercy, and today walk humbly with your God. Father, we're thankful that in spite of our failures, you still call us your people. You love us more than we even love ourselves. You believe in us even when we don't believe in ourselves. And you see the beautiful storyline that all of our lives can have as we remain in relationship with you. As we walk with you from here to eternity, Lord, give us the strength we need. All of us are weak. All of us fall down. We make mistakes. Many of us deal with consequences. But Father, we're thankful that in Jesus we are forgiven. And in Jesus, we have a perfect record. And in Jesus, we have the full assurance of salvation. And someday, we will see you face to face. With your help today, Lord, write a beautiful story. This day and each day until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name.